Hi, Scott. Good to have you on the show. Oh, yeah. It's great to be here. <laughs> so uh, for everybody who doesn't know you, could you please tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, so I am a writer and I write about learning and I just wrote this book recently called uh, Ultra Learning. Those who are listening can't see you, but I'm holding up. It's a teal colored uh, book that just was published last week. And uh, the book is about people who learn hard skills, often through sort of unusual or unorthodox methods for approaching learning those skills and then what the implications are that for not only how you should learn things but also how you can approach getting good at things in your life. Mm. So, so um, before we talk about your book, um, could sure. you please tell our listeners a bit about yourself? Maybe you could speak about how you grew up and how your childhood looked like. So. Yeah, okay. Well, we're going real far back. <laughs> a little bit little bit earlier than just a week ago. Yeah, so I grew up, uh, I'm Canadian. I grew up in Manitoba, Canada, and um, both my parents are school teachers. And so I think that kind of made learning always have sort of a place in, in our lives and in, in sort of uh, it was a central kind of topic. Obviously, when your parents are teachers, school is, is important. And um, growing up, I was always interested in learning new things. And uh, I was interested when I was going to university about how do you get better grades without having to do as much studying or without as much stress and effort. Uh, and so that was a sort of focus of, of mine and, and a lot of my writing back then. I, I've been blogging for about 13 years and I started when I was in school. And, uh, and then sort of it kind of, well, again, talking 10 years ago, although more recently than, uh, than when I was growing up, I... Um, I went on a student exchange to France and this experience mm. of going to France was interesting for me because I really wanted to learn French and I was struggling because my classes were in English. All the people around me were speaking to me in English all the time. I found it very challenging to really learn French and around this time I met this guy who will be the sort of first ultra learner that I met, which I talk about in the book, uh, Benny Lewis, who has a website called Fluent in Three Months, and not only is he very avid about learning languages, but he learns them very intensively. Like he goes to new countries, he starts speaking from nearly the very first day, and he's practicing, practicing uh, from the beginning. And he's, you know, used this approach to learn probably about 10 or more languages. And so I met him, and that was a real kind of kickoff point for me for sort of thinking about alternative ways of learning things, not just so you could get good grades in school, but mm -hmm. so you can get good at skills that you care about in real life. And so since then, I've done a few of my own projects, which I would call kind of ultra learning projects or sort of these aggressive self-directed learning projects. Um, so one of them was the MIT challenge, which I did about eight years ago, which was to try to learn MIT's four-year computer science curriculum by passing the final exams and doing the programming projects over a period of about 12, 12 months from October 2011 till September 2012. And then uh, a few years after that, I did a project which was kind of to, you know, uh, follow in the footsteps of my sort of first mentor in this kind of strange world, which was a project I did with a friend we called The Year Without English. And we traveled to four countries to learn four different languages. So Spain to learn Spanish, Brazil to learn Portuguese, uh, China to learn Mandarin, and South Korea to learn Korean. And the idea of the project was that when we would land in each country, we would only try to speak in the language we were trying to learn, and it worked quite well. We were able to have conversations and make friends and really live in those countries uh, in the languages that we were learning. And, you know, I'm still practicing those languages to this day. 
And uh, and so this sort of book and this sort of thing is just trying to kind of culminate all those experiences, all those things that I've had, and then also trying to format them into some principles that people can apply towards learning things. Mm. So so basically, you had a pretty normal childhood, right? I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 how did your twenties look like? So could you please speak to that? What were you studying? Well. And- Yeah, so I, I my undergrad when I was in school was in business, uh, and that was a sort of I was thinking, okay, I want to be an entrepreneur, so I should study business. Mm-hmm. This was a little bit before I realized that um, business is probably not the best major if you want to be an entrepreneur. It's uh, it's mostly if you want to be a good middle manager in a large corporation. <laughs> But I I studied that, and um, you know the funny thing is is that I started blogging when I was uh, just before I turned 18. So I've been writing for about Well, over 13 years on my blog. So, you know, what my 20s were like, you know, you can even go back to the archives and see what I was writing about and some of my ideas and like personal updates from those times. So it's it's sort of funny, like I think a lot of people talk about these things in retrospect, but I can just go back and read the things that I was writing uh, (laughs) 10 years ago. Got it. So, so, um, Scott, could you please tell us like, why did you want to be a writer in the first place? So, I think <laughs> everybody yeah, would love to hear this. Song. Kind of accidentally, really. Like I, I, I didn't ever think, oh, I want to be a writer. Mm. It was I wanted to I really wanted to have my own kind of online business. So this was when I was about maybe 15. I found this guy uh, who's, you know, now he's become somewhat a popular writer, uh, Steve Pavlina. And he was at the time not really a writer. He was Um, just running a, a sort of a, a small independent like video game business or computer biz- mm. game business online. And there was something about that that just he was just sort of it was a one man operation. So he was running the whole business himself. He was making the games. He was selling them. He was making the money. And there was something about that that really appealed to my kind of sensibilities. Um, so I really liked that he was completely autonomous. I liked that he, you know, he didn't have a boss. He was just doing whatever he wanted. I liked the kind of meritocracy of it. I liked that, you know, if your game is popular and people like it, you make more money. If they don't like it, you make less money. I kind of, I've always sort of disliked systems where people are rewarded based on, you know, oh, does your boss like you? Or is this Mm. kind of, well, you're doing better job, but we're going to pay you less because we don't want this other person to feel bad. And all these kinds of things that often come in in larger companies. I, I never really liked that. I always really liked the kind of just, you know, the real autonomy of it. And I, I also like the idea that, you know, if you were to do something like this and it was online, you could live or work wherever in the world and, and this kind of thing. And so I don't know, there was just something about it that I just instantly excited me when I first heard that idea. And so, again, my original idea was not to be a writer at all. The writing just kind of happened almost accidentally when I was thinking, well, I was going to work on this software. I was thinking I was going to get into writing software and and I... um. I found uh, that, you know, in this software, I was going to have to write some little articles and stuff. And I thought, well, you know, I should probably practice some writing a bit. So sorry, 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 sorry to interrupt here. But um, yeah. you were start, when you were starting to blog uh, or start blogging, um, did you start to write about coding or when when did no, you No, 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 I wasn't writing. Oh, no, okay. I wasn't writing about coding at all. I was writing about personal development topics because that mm-hmm. was what I was really interested in at the time. But I was thinking, well, I'm not good enough to be a writer. This was my mm-hmm. feeling when I was like 17. Yeah. I'm like, well, there's no way I could do writing, but maybe I can make some little software that would like talk about these concepts or like help people, you know, setting goals or things like that. Yeah. And so 
uh, that was sort of my motivation is that there was going to be a little bit of writing in that software, like a few little articles explaining some concepts. And so I thought I needed to practice writing if I was going to do this. And then it turned out that I was much better at writing than I was at making software, at least at this point in time. <laughs> and so so I, I worked on this software program for a little while and it turned out to not be very good. And and then uh, but the writing was something that I kind of stuck with. And then it was just sort of, well, maybe I could have a blog and maybe writing would be the way that I could have this business rather mm, than yeah. uh, doing software. So the writing kind of happened accidentally. And I mean, I've been doing it for like 13 years now. So uh, Long you know, time. now I really see myself as a writer and it is something I'm really interested in, but it was definitely something I kind of fell upon almost accidentally. Got it. So, so let's talk about your blog. So what were you uh, talking about back then and what you are talking about now? So, um, mostly yeah. like uh, at the start, we were talking about like uh, personal development, but uh, yeah, just please speak to that. So well, personal development is a broad category. So I think yeah. you'll talk. <laughs> personal development. Um, I, when I started the blog, I, I did write about habits a lot because that was also mm -hmm. something I was really interested in. And, uh, you know, so if you go back to my early archives, you'll see articles written about habits and motivation and this kind of thing. And then sometime when I was in university, I started writing about sort of my approach to learning. And uh, that just became super popular. And so it wasn't mm. like I had, again, originally intended, oh, my entire focus is going to be about learning. I mean, I was interested in learning and I was a student, so I was obviously doing a lot of it. But it, I wasn't, again, deciding, OK, I'm going to write about learning. It was just, oh, mm. people really like when I write about this. So I just kept writing about it. And um, and so my uh, kind of early writings and early sort of thinking on learning, and this is, again, about over 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, uh, my early writing about learning was mostly focused on how do you study in school. And then uh, that sort of evolved later. And as I said, kind of with this experience of not only learning French, but then doing some of these projects mm. to realizing that learning not is not just about how do you study for exams, but how do you how do you acquire skills and get good at things, which is something mm. that matters outside of that context. So now I would say that I don't really focus that much on how do you pass exams in my writing, but I do really care about learning, you know, real world skills. So, mm. so um, I think everybody who's listening to this is interested in learning new skills. So Scott, please Hopefully. speak to that. So, <laughs> yeah. so please speak to that. So, yeah, yeah. Well, as I, I talk about in this, uh, in this book, I sort of, kind of go through a lot of ideas for learning skills. And I think um, there are a number of ways in which we typically approach learning things where mm -hmm. they're often less than perfect. Uh, so it depends on what you're learning and exactly the situation. So I don't want to say there's just one thing that people make as a mistake, but there's a lot of mistakes that people make in learning skills. And for some skills, those mistakes can be quite large. So Language learning, for instance, is one where I find that the sort of status quo or default approach people take to learning languages is often very ineffective. And so people are often surprised when you see someone like a Benny Lewis who is like trying to get conversational in a couple months. And if you've spent five years studying in school, you're like, well, that's BS. Like no one can do that. But it's just because the way that most people think about learning, which is if they're in school, it means you're mostly sitting in a lecture where someone's explaining the language to you and then maybe mm. you do a bit of homework assignments or if you're at home maybe you're doing Duolingo or some kind of app or something like yeah. this 
And these approaches are not very um, not very effective for for learning a language, at least in the the way that we're, you know, we often want to use a language to have conversations. And so this is an example where I think, you know, compared to the status quo, I think there's a big improvement people can make. But that's just one example. I think there's lots of skills where people get stuck. They're not quite sure how to learn it. and They're not quite sure how to approach things. And if they were to adjust their approach, they would probably get better results. Mm. So how how should they think about learning new skills? Could you please speak to that? Like share with us like something practical for everybody who wants to learn a new language or who wants yeah. to improve their salesmanship skills or what have you. So please speak to that. Sorry, well, what did you say? Please improve their, their what skills? Uh, salesmanship skills or what have you. Like could be mm -hmm. anything. Yeah, so I think, again, as I talk about in the book, I kind of divided over nine principles. And so these sort of principles are just kind of guiding ideas that I think will help people uh, learn things better. So one of them uh, that I think is very important that people often get wrong is this principle of directness. So directness is basically drawing on, there's a robust literature that goes back almost 100 years, a little bit over 100 years, really, about how human beings are not very good at what is called transfer. So transfer is this idea that if you learn something in one domain and then you want to apply it to a different domain, people are often worse at this than you would expect. And mm. the situation in formal education has often been that students are unable to apply knowledge in places that you intuitively would think they ought to be able to apply knowledge. So For some example? instances of some studies, yeah. yeah, some studies that show this, so in one study, um, economics majors did not do better on questions of economic reasoning than non-economics majors, which is, you know, you'd expect if you do an yeah. economics major, you'll do better on questions of economic reasoning. In another study, high school psychology students, so students who took a high school psychology class, did not do better at college level psychology. Again, you know, you'd assume that having some exposure to a topic would help you do better. Yeah. And it didn't seem to be the case, at least in that study. And in another study, uh, honors level high school physics students were not able to solve physics problems when the form was changed just slightly from how they had practiced on tests. And so these are just examples of how we're often unable to transfer knowledge in ways we expect. And this is a real indictment of a lot of formal education because a lot of formal education depends on this transfer existing because mm. what you're doing in the classroom is never actually what you're doing in real life. So if you're not able to transfer it, it really, really undermines a lot of the usefulness of formal education. And so one of the big principles I talk about, about one of these nine principles is directness, which is that it sidesteps some of this problem of transfer by asking you whenever you want to learn anything, figure out where you want to apply it and make sure you're doing some practice in that context or in a context that's very similar to it from the very beginning. So the example with language learning, for instance, is if you wanted to learn a language, is that most people don't actually practice having any kind of conversation for most of the time they're learning a language. And if you look at what is the optimal way to study a language, the majority of your time should be spent doing that. So the mm. fact that you're not doing the main activity is going to really impede how well you learn, because if you learn a language through doing grammar exercises, but you're never practicing speaking with a real human being, then when you go to speak with a real human being, it's going to be surprisingly difficult. And so a lot of people, again, make this mistake of, you know, they spend six months on an app like Duolingo, for instance, 
and then they find, oh, I can't actually speak this language much at all. The problem must be me. You know, the problem must be mm-hmm. that I'm not very smart or that language learning is just so difficult that I, I won't be able to do it. And they don't realize that they're not using the right approach. Um, other examples of this is that if, you know, if you want to learn computer programming and then you just sit through a bunch of lectures and you don't actually write any computer programs or you don't do any of the kinds of projects you want to create, um, you might have difficulty transferring some of this stuff you learn from a lecture directly into a project. And so the examples of where people try to learn something and they're not learning in a very direct way are numerous. I mean, it's probably the default for formal education. And the problems can be quite serious, as some of these studies uh, demonstrate. So that's one of the principles. But of course, there's a lot of ideas that come into learning effectively. So so what you're saying is that everyone who's currently listening to this should be focusing on really um, being practical and learning the actual skill by doing it. So. Yeah, and this is challenging because obviously if we're wanting to learn a new language, uh, speaking a new language when you don't know very much is scary. It's like, how do I start with that? How do I even start with having a conversation? So I don't want to say that there's no nuance to this principle. Like Mm. there's a reason people don't do that. And the reason people don't do that is that it's difficult. It's frustrating, kind of scary. And sometimes the difficulty is also, you know, how do I break it down? How do I make it so that I can do something that resembles real practice? Obviously, if we were saying, okay, we want to do PhD level physics and, you know, (laughs) you don't even know basic math. (laughs) <laughs> you're, you're not going to be able to do that, right? So it's it's going to be something you have to build up to. And so this is sort of, again, a principle in that once you spot, ah, this is where a lot of learning efforts go awry, it doesn't necessarily say, okay, you have to do exactly this. There's still a lot of little fine-grained detailed problems to solve, but it points mm-hmm. you in the right direction. And so that's, again, what I'm, I'm trying to do with this book uh, is to talk about sort of what are the right directions to go. Because once you know, ah, this is a major problem with learning, again, every single situation is going to have its own individual differences that you're going to have to solve. But you'll at least know which direction you're aiming at if you mm-hmm. want to be able to do that. So, so let's talk about the other principles. And of course, we won't do your book justice today. So um, <laughs> could you please speak about the second principle? So, so well, that, that's the, one of the third principles. Another principle that I, um, I think is, I would say, a lot of students um, don't apply it. They, they are, you know, it, it is underapplied, underappreciated, yeah. I guess you could say, as a principle of learning. And this is the principle of retrieval. And so uh, there's this really great study done by uh, Jeffrey Karpicki and Janelle Blunt, where they took students and they divided them into different groups. And so one of the groups, they told, I want you to just repeatedly review the text that you're trying to study. So that means you, you read it and then you read it again and then you read it again until time's up. The other group, they told to do something called free recall. So free recall is where after you read it once, you shut the book and then you try to recall everything that's in it once the book's closed. And so the idea, the reason it's called free recall is that recall obviously is the act of doing this, of remembering things. And the reason it's called free recall is because um, is is in contrast to, let's say, cued recall or question-based recall where I give you some prompt or some question you have to give an answer. It's free recall because there's no questions. You just you just try to remember mm. everything. And there's two interesting things about this study. So the first is that immediately after they did this uh, experience, the experimenters asked the students, 
how well do you think you learned the information? So subjectively, how well mm. do you think you mastered whatever you were studying? And those who did repeated review gave themselves the highest marks. They said, oh, I really know this material. And those who did free recall said, oh, I don't know this information very well. This was actually really difficult. But when you actually test them, the scores reverse. So when you actually test the students, those who did free recall do much better than those who did repeated review. And so this is very interesting because it seems to be that we are often misled about how well we are actually learning something when we're learning it. And so if we think about this in a sort of more practical context, what do most students do when they're studying? Well, they tend to do something that looks like repeated review. I mean, maybe they're doing something a little bit more sophisticated. Maybe they're recopying their notes or rewriting it. But that's still an act of review. It's still an act of the materials in front of you and you're looking at it as opposed to the materials closed and you're trying to remember it. So you can broadly define, sorry, broadly divide uh, a lot of different learning tactics, particularly for like academic based subjects into retrieval based learning and sort of review based learning. So retrieval based learning is any kind of closed book learning strategy where you're doing flashcards, you're doing quizzes, mm. you're doing questions, you're doing practice problems, anything where the answer is not in front of you and you're trying to produce it. And you can talk about review strategies, which are very, very common with students where you look over the notes, you reread the textbook, you you know, retranscribe the notes, you use colored highlighters, all those kinds of things. And so what this principle asserts is that if you want to be able to remember things long term, if you want to be able to perform on tests, you ought to be doing retrieval instead of review. And so this is just an example of another guiding direction. So it not only helps you with, you know, deciding how to study things, but you can also think about this in the context of real world skills. So if you are trying to, you know, keep something in memory, uh, even if we're, we're not talking about an academic subject, like even if we're talking about, you know, you want to be able to remember um, uh, certain facts or certain ideas, then being able to practice recalling it is going to improve your memory more than just looking at it repeatedly. Um, a great little example of this is uh, I had a friend who we were traveling together. This is the guy that I was traveling with uh, in this language learning project, and he he was like really unusual because he had all of his numbers memorized. So whenever you have to like enter a new country, you have to like fill in your passport information mm. or, or if you're purchasing yeah. an airplane ticket, you have to fill out your credit card information. And I'd always have to look at them. Like I, I don't, I don't remember what my passport number is. So I'd have to write it down and he'd be like, you don't have your passport number memorized. And he would just write it down. <laughs> to this. And I was like, oh, well, does this guy just have a better memory than I do? Like what's going on? And then it was only after a little while that I realized why he's able to do this is because for me, I never tried to recall my my mm. password or my number. I would just, oh, I have to fill it in. Well, let's open it up and look at it. And so even but though I, I think done it most people don't times, don't know their number. So true, true. And I'm not <laughs> saying that you need to memorize your number, but I'm just pointing out that this is an illustration of why he had memorized his number rather than, you know, obviously, if you just who cares about memorizing your passport number. <laughs> but it's just an illustration of this principle that if you because he was like actually trying to recall it from memory, like, oh, yeah, what is it? And he puts it down because he's practicing that he actually memorizes all of his numbers. Whereas for me, because I'm always just looking at them and copying them over, I don't memorize them. And so, you know, the, obviously the implications for a student studying for a test are, are clear because what do a lot of students do? They look at the num look at the facts and they copy them over as opposed to doing retrieval practice. Mm. So retrieval practice would be like one of the, the key points in your book. Yeah, it's one of these nine principles that I have here of, of effective learning and, and how you can 
uh, improve how you acquire knowledge and skills. So, so let's talk about the third or fourth uh, principle of the book. Yeah, so, well, I'm, I'm doing them out of order here. So the, oh, direct, okay. the first one was principle number three, and this one was principle number five. So, I, I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yes, I can talk about, uh, yeah, the, the overall the principles, we've got nine principles. The first one is meta-learning, which is first learning how to learn the subject that you want to learn. And there's some strategies for how to do research to figure out what to learn. Could Second you principle is... Uh, yes, yes. So the idea behind meta learning is essentially if you're entering in, into any new project where you want to learn some new subject or skill, and this is particularly true if you know you your goal is okay, I'm going to I'm going to learn a new language or I'm going to learn programming or I'm going to learn some new skill on my own, as opposed to you know, well, I'm just going to go to school for four years and study this, and then someone else is going to tell me exactly what to do. Especially if you're learning a skill on your own. The meta learning is very important because often the weakness of doing self-education projects is not only do you not know the subject, but you also don't know the right way to learn it. So this is an example when we're talking about language learning that it's not only the case that once you've learned a language before that you already you know, have some ideas about learning language, but you will learn more effectively because you also have some sense of how to progress in learning a language. You know what to focus on, what not to focus on, what kind of practice to do. And so the idea here is that if people spend a little bit of time up front trying to do some of that research ahead of time, they will be much better off than if they just sort of, okay, let's just pick up a random book or random app mm. and let's try to go with it. Well, you know, hopefully they'll that, reach the destination. Um, so that would be the, the first principle. Um, I mean, do you want me to go through? Uh, yeah, I, I want to to go through the rest. So, yeah. Sure. So, uh, so. sure. so uh, the second principle is uh, focus. So focus is, you know, obviously important for learning. You need to be able to have concentrated bursts of time in order to learn things effectively. Uh, multitasking is not good for, for learning things. Having, you know, your attention split between multiple tasks is not good. But then also it's important to overcome your tendency to procrastinate, your tendency to say that you want to learn this, but then you don't actually put time into learning it. And, and so how should people do it? Because I mm -hmm. think that uh, most people are struggling with, with procrastination. So could you please speak to that? Yeah. Well, the way that I feel procrastination tends to operate is that we have this aversion to doing certain things or we have this sort of craving to do something else. And so this balance of sort of aversion and craving is really kind of a fundamental operating principle that we use for our whole lives whenever we're doing anything is like you kind of feel like doing something or you don't feel like doing something. And it is possible to sort of override that feeling if you're like, okay, no, but I have to work. And then you can kind of smother it a little bit. But in the other sense, it's often very difficult to do this. And so one of the things that I think is key to overcoming procrastination is recognizing that we have these feelings about certain activities, but the feelings themselves are often very fleeting. So mm -hmm. if you have this feeling about, okay, uh, it's time to study now, and you have this real strong, oh God, I don't want to do that. But maybe you start doing it for five, 10 minutes and that feeling goes away. Now, maybe you're not in love with studying this subject, but once you've been yeah. doing it for five, 10 minutes, it just feels neutral to you. It doesn't have a strong negative feeling or a positive feeling. And so a lot of what this is, is about how do you create what I call crutches or how do you create sort of a scaffolding in your environment so that you get through the most difficult parts 
where you have the most aversion, how do you find ways to get through those things? And sometimes it's just about changing your framing. So a really classic technique is the Pomodoro technique, which I'm sure listeners are familiar with. But the basic idea is that, you know, you set a timer, 25 minutes, and after 25 minutes, uh, you take a five-minute break. And the reason that the Pomodoro work technique works well is because if you're thinking about your work in terms of, okay, time to do this five-hour activity, it's there's a lot of resistance to it. But mm. if it's a 25-minute activity, it's not so much. And sometimes you can make it even simpler. You can just have like a five-minute rule. Okay, well, I'm just going to do this for five minutes, and then if I don't want to do it anymore, I can take a break. And this is somewhat counterintuitive because a lot of people, again, there's a there's a, a balance here, right? That, okay, I want to really take this seriously and work really hard for long periods of time, so how, how does working for five minutes yeah. you know, match up? And so it's about having a certain level of self-awareness. And so this self-awareness takes time to cultivate, to be realizing, oh, I actually am procrastinating right now. So sometimes people will rationalize their aversion as something else. So, you know, oh, well, you know, I'm, I should take a break because I've been studying really hard and, you know, life can't be about work. <laughs> or I, I should procrastinate on this right now because there's some other activity. Well, I should really do this first and then I'll get around to doing that mm, thing. I really don't. Yeah. Tomorrow. Or, tomorrow. <laughs> yes. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Exactly. And so there's lots of things that people procrastinate with. You know, sometimes it's not even the initiation of a task. Sometimes in the middle of a task, you'll have moments of what I'll call friction where you have a strong resist, strong urge to give up in that moment. So one of the examples that I give from my own life is when I was uh, learning Mandarin Chinese, one of the techniques I was using was using flashcards to memorize characters, but also words and phrases and things like this. And I was doing a lot of this. I had a lot of flashcards, and so I had to get through quite a few of them. Now, each individual flashcard maybe only takes, you know, 15 seconds. It doesn't take very long. Mm. You look at it. Do I know what this is? Give the answer you know it or you don't. And part of the thing that would be, could be quite frustrating is because the software I was using for doing these flashcards, they would be such that if I would get the question wrong, it would uh, it would come back at me and it would say, okay, well, you're going to have to review this more frequently in the future. So mm -hmm. essentially the way that software works is that if you get the question right, it will kick the next time you have to review the flashcard often way down in the future. So let's say, you know, it might say, okay, you're not going to have to look at this card for another three months. But if you get it wrong, then you have to study it like a couple times this week. You have to like, you kind of restarts the schedule, yeah. so to speak. And this is immediately very frustrating because if you're constantly trying to review stuff mm. and then you're getting things wrong, you're like, oh my God, now I have Fuck more work this, to yeah. do. And I'm, yeah. And so the idea here is that this feeling would be like, oh God, I hate this. And then I want to quit. And what I realized in this moment was that that feeling of, oh, I hate this. I want to quit. Maybe yeah. actually only lasts five, 10 seconds. But if I indulge in it, then studying's done for the day or I'm done for that studying yeah. session. I'm not able to make any progress. So I made a rule for myself. This is similar to like the five minute rule for getting started, except it's for continuing an activity, which is just I'm not allowed to quit when my most recent card was incorrect. So mm. even if I really feel like quitting, I just get the next one right and I can quit. But it's funny because as soon as you get one right, then your confidence comes up again. You feel better. You're like, oh, studying is not so bad, you know, and then you keep going. Right. And so this is an example of how if you can reflect on your own efforts to learn or really your own efforts to do anything and just try to pinpoint when do I feel the urge to quit? When do things feel oh, I really don't want to do this? 
And I mean, cultivating that self-awareness is not easy. A lot of times people just think, oh, I don't like X. And it's hard to say, but when don't you like X? When do you feel this feeling that you don't like X? Because my guess is that it's not an even continuous, I hate this for, no one feels anything continuously for eight hours. No, it's the truth. Like no, you, you, all your feelings are little spikes of, and then you're fine. And then oh, yeah. I don't like this. And it's, and it's a, the, your emotions are rarely constant. Your emotions map out changes that they're, you know, you're feeling elated, you're feeling sad, you're feeling angry, you're feeling frustrated. All these things are little blips in your emotional life. They're not continuous feelings, but we often conceptualize them as continuous feelings because let's say I really don't like going to the gym, but what I really don't like is the deciding to go to the gym, walking to the gym, starting the exercise. When I'm at the gym, you know, maybe I maybe I don't love it, but maybe I just feel neutrally about it. Well, I'm at the gym and it's fine. Right. Mm. And so if you can structure your life so that these little blips are where that's where you're applying the willpower, that's where you're applying your constraints and tricks and all the ways that you have to motivate yourself. They all come in in those moments. You're going to be a lot more efficient than if you're just constantly trying to like, well, how do I motivate myself to do this Mm. for six hours? Well, no, maybe what you need to do is motivate yourself in like several key moments where you might otherwise give up or, or not be able to do it. So so basically what you're trying to say here is that everyone who is currently listening to this try, should think about um, changing their paradigm or their perspective on oh, certain yeah. things they dislike to do or procrastinate on. My My advice to anyone listening here right now, the first piece of advice is just to, ju- instead of trying to fix the problem, try to mm. figure out if you can just spot it. Because again, I think the self-awareness has to come first. A lot of us are like, well, how do I stop procrastinating? But they don't really understand their own procrastination enough, I think, to solve the problem. It's a little bit like a doctor. You go to the doctor's office and instead of asking the patient what their symptoms are, you just say, okay, here's some medicine. That's not going to be a very effective (laughs) doctor, right? And so you want to be a good doctor for your own self-diagnosis of your procrastination. You want to be able to say, okay, well, what exactly is the problem? Where exactly does it hurt? Mm. What exactly are the symptoms? Because if you don't know, then you might give yourself the wrong medicine and it might not be very helpful. So if your idea is that, well, I just need to take things more seriously and I have to really buckle down and I have to work really hard and set like five-hour study schedules because otherwise I'm not going to pass this exam that's coming up. But what your problem was is, is actually just initiating studying, then that might actually might be counterproductive, right? Because now the way you're thinking about your studying is you're turning it into this big thing that sounds really painful and awful and you're not actually getting started with it. Whereas Mm. what you really need to do is how do I make it really effortless to get started all the time? And then Mm. even if I take some breaks, even if I don't, if it's just really effortless to get started, maybe I'll make more progress. Or similarly, like my flashcard example, if you can identify, okay, this is where I'm going to get frustrated and want to give up. So I'm going to really focus in those moments that I'm not allowed to quit in those exact moments. I have to keep going for another couple minutes or something. That's another example of where you can uh, overcome these weaknesses. And, and I think that actually starting is the biggest problem because once somebody is doing the task, it's actually really easy, I guess. So. Yeah, so a lot of our behavior works off of habits chaining and triggering other habits. So much of our way our mind works is associative. So not only with habits, but also with learning that one thing leads to another. You know, I'm saying this sentence right now and the words that are coming out of my mouth are because of previous words I, that came out of my mouth. Mm. And so because of this sort of chaining of habits, that there's sort of linkages between one 
cue creating some kind of response, which itself creates its own cue, which creates its own response. There's sort of a chain of actions, chains of sequences of behavior, sequences of thought, sequences of memories, of ideas, of connections between things. Because of this associative principle of the mind, it means that often the very difficult thing is when you're going into a new sequence, because then the cues and triggers are more variable. There's more diversity of the different types of things that might happen in the environment that would trigger cue off these different chains of behaviors. And because, you know, when, let's say, let's say when you start going to the gym, I'll give an example. Yeah. So if we can think about the sequences of actions of going to the gym, it would be making the decision to go to the gym. It would be maybe packing your gym bag. It would maybe be, you know, getting in the car, be driving to the gym. It would be getting changed. It would be doing the workout. It would be, you know, having a shower or be coming home. It would be, you know, unpacking your gym clothes, whatever it is, right? Like, let's say the, the, there's these sort of, and there's probably lots smaller ones in your specific case of like, he walked to this door, you do this activity. <laughs> and the thing yeah. is, is that in that, it, the way to think about it is that going to the gym isn't one habit. It's many, many, many of these little tiny components mm -hmm. that are all queued up. And so the, the, often the difficulty is the first one, the decision to go to the gym. And the reason that that's hard is because that decision needs to be cued from almost anything. So almost anything from your, like the, what is happening in your life is maybe every day it's very different when you decide to cue that behavior. And so if you don't have the habit of going to the gym all the time, it can often be difficult to cue up this behavior because all the things that could possibly cue it are a lot more variable. But once you make the decision to go to the gym, then the getting the gym bag, then the doing this, then the doing that, that becomes a lot more automatic because they are so tightly coupled. You often don't even think about doing them because they are just sort of a, a natural flow mm. of the execution of that habit. And so this actually ties into learning as well, because when we're talking about learning, often the thing that's difficult is cueing the appropriate context for thinking about a skill. So I'll relate this back to the two principles that we were talking about before about retrieval and about transfer. So the reason that transfer is often difficult is because you have knowledge inside your head. So it's not that the economics majors didn't know anything about economics. It's not that they weren't able to solve economics problems. The problem is that they haven't learned to apply that economics knowledge to the kinds of questions that they were given in that test. So because they didn't activate the knowledge, it's a little bit like doing the gym habit because they're not used to activating this huge chain, this huge association of knowledge when they see a certain situation. Um, really great example of this. So I'm working with a, a colleague and he's trying to calculate some accounting stuff for us. And the mm. counting problem that we were dealing with was that in Canada, at least where I, I live, um, when you when you sell something, you have to charge a sales tax and the sales tax is added on top of the purchase price. So let's say you bought something for $1, then maybe you're paying a dollar and 12 cents is yeah, like what it. you would actually pay. So some countries they include the tax, so you'd pay a dollar and but in Canada it's not that way. Now the problem is that our software we were using to sell like, you know, ebooks and courses and things, it wasn't able to do that. So mm -hmm. we had to retroactively figure out well what was the tax that they were supposed to pay. And so let's say the the rate is 12%. So my friend is, or my colleague is, is calculating this and he says, okay, well, let's say we sold $100. That means that the tax was $12. Mm. And I'm like, well, no, it's not $12 because $12 is not 12% of, you know, $88, which is effectively what the price would have been. And so what you actually have to do is you have to go like, you know, uh, you know, the X is the actual amount and X times 1.12 is equal to the total amount of money we made. And then you solve for X. So you divided by that and you get the right number. 
And the funny thing was, is as soon as you set up the algebra, as soon as you say, okay, well, this is actually what you need to do with the algebra, then my friend could solve the problem instantly because he spent years doing algebra. All of us have done algebra and math classes. The problem is not that he couldn't do that. The problem is that normally he's not using algebra when he's actually doing his job. And so the idea that he should activate that knowledge in that situation is not, is kind of, oh, right, this does apply to this situation. It's a, there's too many cues from the environment and it's, Mm. they're not usually associated with activating algebra knowledge. So he doesn't. And so this illustrates why this transfer can fail to occur, not because the knowledge doesn't exist, but because it doesn't get connected to that context. Uh, The other example is about uh, retrieval. So one of the ideas of retrieval is that uh, there is a notion by the psychologist R.A. Bjork of what's known as desirable difficulties. And so the idea behind desirable difficulties is that they have noticed that the more difficult retrieval is, so the harder it is for you to remember what what the answer is because of the format of the type of question or the type of retrieval you're doing, the harder it is to recall. If you recall it successfully, the more effective it will be for later improving your memory. So Mm. there's different types of retrieval. So one of them we could talk about was in that study was free recall. So you read a page and you close the book and you try to recall everything. Another thing could be question-based recall so that I ask you some questions about the text and you have to answer those, those specific questions. Another thing could be cued recall, where I give you some kind of hint or suggestion Mm. and you have to fill in the rest. So it could be, for instance, you know, uh, like a fill in the blank, like, okay, you know, and you have to just, you just have to recall some part of the answer as opposed to the whole answer. Or there's, you know, all sorts of recall like this. And what they've noticed is that free recall, if you're successful at remembering something, that will strengthen your memory more than if you do cued recall. And then that's even better than if you do something where like, I give you most of the answer and and then you just have to recall like a very small part of it. And the reason for this, again, is related to this idea of the habits, is that there's all sorts of cues that could be possibly in the environment. Mm. And so most of the time, that memory trace is not strong enough to get activated without some specific prompting, without some specific cue. And so you could even think about, um, you know, when you're doing some kind of review practice, when you're looking something over and over again, that's itself kind of like your cue is the entire answer. And so when you see the entire answer, you cue it up in your memory and you say, oh, yeah, I recognize that. But you can also see why that's not as effective for studying, because what you're actually trying to do in real life is have some sort of question where you don't have that activation and still you're able to activate the knowledge. And so this idea about habits, this idea about learning mm-hmm. is all related to this sort of association principle of the brain. I, I, I think that those, uh, this uh, association principle is like so, so, so important because, um, for instance, people who start to go to the gym, now they're starting to focus on their nutrition. Now they're starting to focus on their sleep patterns. And, um, yeah, they, they, they somehow over a couple of months, like fix their whole life. So um, maybe you could also speak to that. Yeah, I don't know exactly what the exact mechanism would be behind that. But I think that there is definitely a case where as you start to engage in a certain kind of behavior, it maybe primes a certain kind of thinking. So when I go to the gym, I may be priming a certain kind of like caring about my health type thinking. And Mm. in the caring of your health type thinking mode, it's also easier to activate related thoughts about, well, I should also eat better. 
And yeah. what about my sleep and this kind of thing? Whereas if you were in a very different mode of thinking, like maybe you're in, you know, you're on vacation and your goal is to like relax as much as possible, it may be harder from that perspective to um, activate those things. So I don't know how much of that is a sort of a deep change that you are, you know, ch fundamentally changing your identity of how you see yourself and that allows you to make those changes or whether it's a more superficial thing that just because you're going to the gym, you're thinking about fitness more often and therefore you're also thinking mm. about, you know, eating right more often just because it's on your mind more often. So those other those other habits of patterns of thought get activated more often. So, so, so you don't know about research on this topic, basically, so... Uh, well, the specific question you asked, I don't know yeah, okay. uh, the exact research on that, but my get that that would just be my speculation. Yeah, got it. So, um, could you speak about the other principles of the book? Like we have covered a few, yeah. but um, yeah. yeah. So we covered meta learning, we covered focus, we covered uh, directness. So those were the first three, and then we also covered the fifth principle, retrieval. The fourth principle is drill, and so the idea behind drill, drill is essentially that it's kind of the complement to direct practice. So the problem with just doing direct practice all the time, you know, it, it's easier to understand through an example. So if we wanted to get good at basketball and basketball, you know, it is such a well-studied kind of area of performance improvement. You know, you have people earning million dollar salaries yeah. just to figure out how to make basketball players a little bit better. So this is a good it's always good to start with, like, what are the elite performers doing? Because even if they don't you know, necessarily know all the science, they're probably, you know, through trial yeah. and error found something close and so what you know about basketball is first of all that anyone who's good at basketball is going to play basketball games so directness in this case is kind of obvious you mm. know very few people are learning basketball by just reading a textbook very few people are learning basketball by you know i guess okay, we're, just only gonna do, <laughs> we're just gonna only do layup drills and hopefully it'll make sense when, when a game comes around however you know that if you are serious about basketball playing you're not just playing games all the time. You're also doing drills. And so why are drills important? And why do they impact when you're learning other things? So there's a couple reasons. The first reason is that sometimes you will have a weakness that is you're bad at X. And because you're bad at X, which is a component of the larger skill you're doing, it brings down your overall performance. So to use the basketball example, if you are really bad at shooting three-pointers, then I mean, maybe you can avoid being the person who gets tossed the ball, but whenever you're behind that three-pointer line and you try to shoot and you miss, it's going to hurt your performance to the team. So if you want to improve your value as a basketball player, drilling three-pointers would be useful because it will you know, improve your overall ability, perhaps more so than getting better at something that you're already pretty good at. Let's say you're already good at dribbling or passing. Getting a little bit better at dribbling or passing may not make the same impact. And so one of the things you can do with drills is just focus on what are you weakest at. So if you look at all the things that are impacting your performance, figure out, okay, if I could get better at this one thing, it would just instantly improve my performance. If we're talking about language learning, a really good example of that is, you know, you can think about languages as being partly vocabulary, partly grammar, partly uh, pronunciation. I mean, there's more than that, but those are three broad categories that are about languages. And for a lot of people learning a language, If they just improve their vocabulary, they will be able to speak more sentences and say more words and actually communicate better. So it may be the case that even if you're practicing a lot, you may want to improve your vocabulary. That was a big motivation behind me doing a lot of flashcards when I was learning Mandarin Chinese. And so the idea of drill is one is to focus on your weak points. The other thing is that even if you don't have a specific weak point, 
often it's difficult to improve a skill when you have to deal with every part of the skill at the same time. So again, continuing our language learning example, it may be hard to acquire vocabulary when you're in natural speaking situations because you also have to think about your pronunciation. You also have to try to you know, think about what you're trying to say and what they're trying to say and, and communicating. You're thinking about grammar. You're thinking about, you know, if you're speaking a romance language, you're conjugating. You're thinking, oh, wait, was that the subjunctive? Like you're thinking about all these things. So if they say a new word, your attention and your cognitive resources may be split between too many things mm. for you to remember it really effectively. Now, this isn't always the case, but it's sometimes the case. And when it is the case like this, it can also be useful to split off a component and really drill down on it because you can devote 100% of your attention to that. So there's lots of different ways to do drills for different subjects, but this is sort of the overarching principle that should push you in the right direction is mm. to spot your weaknesses as well as work on these cognitive components. Got it. So so basically spotting your weaknesses is one really important point. Um Like, speak to those other principles. So we, we have covered fifth, I guess. So Yeah, so the principle six is feedback. And feedback, feedback. is obviously very important. Yeah, feedback is very important for learning. So the idea behind uh, feedback is just that not only do you need feedback to learn well, but also mm -hmm. that the role feedback plays is very important because so there's this interesting study. Uh, it was uh, what's known as a meta-analysis. So a meta-analysis is where the study authors look at a bunch of other studies, and then they try to add up all the different effects to sort of figure out what's the impact of X on Y. Instead of just looking at one study, you look at like 300 studies. And so in this meta-analysis done by Angelo, uh, Angelo Denisi and Abraham Kluger, I'm mixing up their first and last names, um, they looked at the role of feedback in response to learning. And the thing they found is that in most studies, feedback has a positive impact on learning. So, you know, as you would expect, getting feedback improves how you learn. Interestingly, in something like 37 or 38% of the studies said it, it actually had a negative effect. So it's certainly not universally positive that feedback is useful for learning. And so there are two sort of main weaknesses of feedback, which allow people who are not very sophisticated at this approach to maybe fall into traps where they think, well, I need to get a lot of feedback, but they make mistakes about it. So the first thing is trying to draw information from feedback that doesn't actually exist. Mm. So one of the examples is, let's say we're starting a business and you create some new product and you really want to know what customers think of this product. And so you say, hey, You know, what do you think of this product? Now, it may be possible in this case to have the customer say, I like it or I don't like it. However, it's probably not the case in, in most situations that customers, if they say they don't like it, necessarily can say why they don't like it. Mm. Now, it may be the case that, oh, there's a bug here. That's why I didn't like it. But it may also be the case that they are just getting an overall feeling from the entire product that I like it or I don't like it. And then when you ask them, why don't you like it? They're just going to make up some reason like, uh, okay, maybe it's this reason is the reason I don't like it. And so the problem a lot of new business owners make is that if they don't get a lot of feedback, especially if they don't have a lot of customers, they may only get like two or three of these reviews. So they just go ahead and just follow every single piece of advice that was given, even though these advice and these sort of ideas might be spurious. So one idea of mm. feedback is that you have to filter it. You have to know what kind of information to pay attention to and what not to pay attention to. And so mm. all of the ultra learners, the people who accomplish these really impressive uh, self-directed learning projects that I talk about in the book, they were all masters of not just getting feedback, 
but also mm. tuning it and, and focusing on getting the right kind of feedback. So that was that's definitely an important part of processing uh, feedback correctly. And I think especially in this day and age of social media, people are listening like to too, too many people. So um, this guru is saying this and that, and this one is saying this, and people are so, so, so confused. So evaluating um, who you are actually listening to and taking your advice from is, I think, like very, very important. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I think it's uh, the research on feedback was very interesting for me because I kind of, when I was writing the book, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking and yeah. learning about learning for years before I started doing the research for this book. And I just anticipated, well, when I do the research, it's going to be like, well, you need to have feedback. It has to be immediate. If you don't have feedback, you're never going to learn anything. Yeah. And it's not to say that, that that opinion was wrong, but rather that there's so many little nuances to how feedback works. And this is true mm. of all of these principles. I mean, we're what, kind of what do you mean by that? Well, one of the nuances we're talking about is just that in this analysis, they found that 37, 38 percent of the times feedback didn't work and, mm, and it actually okay, had yeah. a negative impact. So what I'm talking about nuance is that if you just have the idea of feedback's good and you just go out and you get more feedback, yeah. <laughs> if it's the wrong kind of feedback, if you're not filtering it or alternatively, um, when you give people feedback, it can have motivational effects. So if I tell you, you know, oh, you're no good at this, you might as well give up now. Well, I mean, maybe maybe you're going to say, oh, well, screw this. I'm not going to work hard. And and then you're not going to, you know, that is feedback, but it's not very helpful feedback. So one of the things, you know, we're talking about these principles in a very high level way. But one of the things I wanted to try to express in this book is that there's different layers of understanding you can get. So I'm hoping that, you know, for people who this all sounds very overwhelming, they can just sort of take the idea. I should try to get more feedback for my learning and they will probably mm. benefit from that again. Most cases, feedback does help. But then at the same time, uh, I'm hoping that there's going to be some people that if they're having problems or they're having difficulties learning are going to dig into some of the layers below and sort of see some of this kind of nuance and hopefully make kind of finer adjustments. So they'll start filtering their feedback or when we're talking about retrieval, they'll, you know, not just not just retrieval is good, which is, again, another principle, but that they will be fine tuning it so that they'll be recognizing, well, what's the kind of retrieval I need to be doing in this situation? And you know, which things do I need to retrieve? Which which things are, is it, is yeah, it OK yeah. that if I don't remember them, I look them up like the passport number example is one that maybe you don't need to memorize your passport number. So there's there's a there's a lot of nuance in each of these principles, but I'm mm. hoping to give people just a bird's eye view that will, you know, give them something useful to start with. But I'm hoping that for people who are really interested in learning how to learn that they can, you know, kind of think about it a little bit more and dig a little deeper and, and maybe even make subtler modifications that will help them uh, overcome particular learning challenges. Got it. So um, let's talk about the last three principles. And of course, people who really want to dive into this whole topic should buy your book. But um, yeah, yeah, please speak to that. Sure. So the, the next principle, principle seven is retention. And forgetting is just an intrinsic part of how our minds work. So as soon as we're learning things, we start forgetting them. And this is a major problem if we're learning mm. something like, let's say, a language, because, you know, how many of us, you know, you took three years of high school French and you don't remember any of it. Or you, you know, you spent four years doing an undergrad and you remember like six things from your undergrad. Like how many people have that experience? It's ubiquitous. The forgetting is very, very common. Mm. And so in this book, I try to sort of talk about some of the mechanisms by which we forget. So how do we forget things? Because if you want to remember things, you need to understand why you forget. 
But then also look at what are some of the tools that you can use to combat this forgetting. So one of the major ideas, this is a very common, commonly studied uh, phenomenon, is known as the spacing effect. So the spacing effect basically says if, if let's say you, uh, let's say you're going to encounter a piece of information 10 times. So let's say it's, you know, a specific idea and then you look at it 10 times in a row or you look at it 10 times spread out, you know, once per day over 10 days. The latter person is going to remember that information far longer, even if they spent the same total amount of time. So spacing represents a way that you can learn more quickly or more efficiently because by spacing things out, you're getting more bang for your buck, so to speak. You are actually able to remember things better mm. per the amount of time you have. And so people have, uh, you know, turned this law of spacing into sort of almost a veritable little cottage industry of how do you remember things better through what are called spaced repetition systems. So spaced repetition systems are this flashcard software that I was mentioning earlier in the call where Basically, you have a program that has a bunch of flashcards and you look at those things, but then it's not just, okay, giving you the flashcards, but it's also managing the schedule of when you should review those flashcards. And because it's managing the schedule over what is known as a, um, like an ever extending kind of schedule. So it's not just every five days you'll get practice, but it's, you know, one day and then three days and then six days and then three weeks and then they do it like that. And this can allow you to do memorize a lot more information mm. because it's actively managing um, this spacing effect. Uh, another thing that's very important for uh, for retention is proceduralization. So proceduralization is the idea that, you know, you know how everyone says uh, it's like remembering how to ride a bicycle. Well, there may be some kind of neurological basis of this that procedural skills or skills that we think of as like muscle memory may be stored differently in our minds than declarative knowledge or things that you actually have to explicitly remember. And so my favorite example that sort of demonstrates this is that if you think about typing on a keyboard, when you start learning how to type, you may have to think about where the letters are with respect to your fingers. So you, you have some kind of explicit map of the fingers. And so if you want to type a letter, you have to say, okay, like W. And then you're like, okay, it's over this finger and I have to move my finger here. <laughs> or, uh, you know, uh, like L and then you do this. But then after a while, as you type more and more, this declarative knowledge can fade away. You maybe lose that knowledge, but you still recall the positions through just feel. So... Mm -hmm. You know, when when I was writing this chapter, I was thinking about, OK, you know, using the example of where's the W key. Well, to do that, I didn't have to like I couldn't visualize the keyboard. What I had to do is just actually pretend to type a W and I'm like, oh, it's, it's up here because I'm doing this. Right. Mm. And so this is an example where um, the procedural memories may last longer than the declarative memories. And the implication of this is that it may mean that if you can convert some of your knowledge to procedural knowledge, it may be more durable. It may be less likely to be forgotten. Now, it's still mm. somewhat debatable to what extent some skills can be proceduralized. Like it may not be the case that you can turn solving physics problems into muscle memory. Like that may not be possible. But sure? there's probably some there's <laughs> probably some in between level. There's probably some in between level. So if we're talking about speaking a language, for instance, it may be the case that certain phrases, certain sound bites get proceduralized so that it is actually a muscular movement that you're producing with your mouth and tongue in order to produce those words or phrases. And they may get to a point where you're no longer explicitly recalling, how do I say this? You're just mm. saying that. 
And so yeah. there may be the case that you can, if you really practice something, you can get to that level. Now, in a lot of school situations, we don't really do this because the way that we often teach school situations is, let's say there's 10 topics to cover. We cover topic one. As soon as you've kind of gotten the basics of topic one, we move to topic two and then topic three, topic four, et cetera, et cetera. And the challenge there is that because you have just sort of just started to learn it when you move on to the next thing, you maybe haven't gotten to this proceduralized stage of the knowledge. And because you haven't gotten to the proceduralized stage of the knowledge, it may be less durable than other forms of learning. Whereas if you learned a language, let's say through immersion, there may be some core phrases that you've said them many, many, many more times than you needed to, to, to actually just be able to pass a test saying those phrases because you had to use it all the time. Mm. But that also makes them more durable in the long run. So uh, this idea of chapter of retention, I've, I've got a number of different techniques, but the idea is basically to factor in the fact that you're going to forget before you even start learning. And especially once you finish learning something that you have some plan so that you'll be able to continue using the skill in the way that you'd like to. Mm. Yeah, Barbara Oakley uh, has made a good point. She also was on my podcast and I think you're familiar with her. So um, yeah, yeah, she said... Yeah, she said that um, that if you are learning from an exam, for example, and you do this like huge learning marathon where you're like learning for 10 hours or something, you'll forget yeah. like basically everything one week later. So um, could you please speak to that, Scott? Well, that's that's the spacing effect in action. Yeah. Yeah. So so um, what are the last two principles here? So the last two principles are intuition and experimentation. And the idea behind intuition is that if you want to uh, handle things that are difficult to understand or things that are difficult to uh, have kind of an intuitive understanding for, then there's two major ideas. So one of them is not really uh, a tactic or suggestion, but just merely a description of how we develop intuitions. And so this is an idea that I know Barbara Oakley is a big fan of um, called chunking. And so... Uh, I'll give an example of, to understand what chunking means. So if I were to list the word, the letters uh, FMC, uh, BBI, and then IAA, and ask you to repeat those back to me, do you think you'd be able to do it? No. Now, what if I put them in this order? FBI, MBA, CIA, would you be able to remember those, those letters? Mm. Yeah. So the idea here is that the letters were the same. So the actual knowledge that you had to store in both cases were identical. There, there wasn't a difference between the amount of knowledge. But the difference is that FBI, CIA, and MBA are each chunks that bind three mm -hmm. letters together and a lot more information. You have a lot more information than just the letters. When you think of FBI, you know it's the Federal yeah. Bureau of Investigation. You know it's police. You probably think of some movies. There's a lot of stuff that's tied in with that association. But the idea of chunking is that as we learn things that start out as sort of fragmented pieces become larger and larger and more and more abstract patterns. So the first research that was done on this was done on chess players. So the way that this idea of chunks came about is that they would test um, novices in chess as well as chess masters by giving them a board and asking them to recreate it from memory. So they give them a board, then they clear the table, and then they ask them, okay, can you like put the chess pieces down to recreate the board? And what they found is that novices tend to put pieces down one at a time. So they'll mm. just say, okay, there was a, I think there was a pawn here. I think there was, and just like the letters analogy that I was giving you, they forget most of it because it's hard to remember where every single piece is on the board. 
grandmasters could often remember the entire board. And the reason they could remember the entire board is because they didn't put the pieces down one at a time. They put them down in chunks, which had multiple pieces. So they were like, well, I know that the knight was forking the queen and the king, and so they go here. And I know that this was happening so that it was like this. And so instead of having to remember every single piece, they were remembering a few higher level, more abstract patterns. And one of the things that was interesting from this study is that a lot of people think of chess grandmasters and they think, well, this is just someone who can like see eight moves ahead. Yeah. Like infinite calculations in their mind. You know, the equations are running down their face and this kind of thing. And then they're finding the right. (laughs) But this this turns out not to be the way that grandmasters are able to perform, because if you Mm. take the chessboard and you create a position that does not arrive from natural play. So you just put the pieces down randomly, but this is not a position that you could get to from playing chess. It would just be, you know, pawn here, knight here, like all the pieces randomly. Once you do this, the advantage the grandmasters had over the novices disappears. So it's not the case that chess grandmasters are just super good at remembering things or just super good at planning chess moves. What it is is that they have these libraries of patterns and that the patterns come from real life. They come from actually interacting with things. But they, like the FBI, MBA, CIA analogy, Mm. they allow them to work with these pieces. And Mm. so the idea here is that if you want to be good at a difficult conceptual subject, let's say physics, let's say math, let's say, you know, uh, any, any kind of subject, really business, anything like this, often what you are trying to do is acquire more and more of these patterns through experience so that when you see complicated situations, the right answer kind of just jumps out at you because you can perceive the kind of simpler pattern amongst this complex whole. And so the problem, and one of the things I point out is that often when people have this ability that they have all these patterns, they think that what the what's going on in this person's mind is that they're doing the same thing that they're doing, they're just doing it extremely fast, you know? Yeah. But there's nothing there, there's nothing different about like you know the the working memory or the ability to have multiple chunks in memory is not that different between the two. And so if we are looking at like again we're talking about um uh you know the chess masters and the the novices as soon as you deal with a completely different domain then usually those those things about equal out that that people yeah, of similar intelligence levels will will be about the same. And so uh you know these this shows that our ability to perform things is also quite specific, which is also related to this transfer idea that we were talking about mm. earlier, that earlier principle that part of the reason transfer is difficult is because part of the reason that we're able to have this kind of fluid and intelligent way of processing things is from having a lot of context specific experience. Mm. So, Scott, um, I ask every guest at the end of, uh, of our conversations five very quick and short questions. But um, before sure. I ask those, please. Speak to the last principle and give it our <laughs> listeners um, sure. your best advice on learning. So sure. here you go. So the idea, the idea um, behind experimentation is essentially that if you are learning anything, the attitude you want to adopt is not one of okay. Here's a rigid rule of okay. I'm going to do step one, step two, step three, step four. The idea is okay. This is sort of my hypothesis about how I want to learn this. And then you go out and you try it for a while and then you get some feedback on how it works and then you adjust. And so I've listed a lot of different ideas in this conversation and I have way more in the book that will cover about how you can learn things. 
But the idea here is not to take these principles as fixed rules, not to take them as like, well, always do this and always do that. Rather, it's to use them as starting points for your own experiments. And so I think if you can adopt the experimental mindset, you'll be much better off than if you expect there to be a formula that if you follow it exactly, you will get perfect results. And I think that's not true of just of learning, but also of life in general. Yeah. And, 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 and what is your best advice on learning? You forgot that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, my best advice in learning, I would probably start with the directness principle. I mean, we've talked about a lot mm. of different ideas here. So, I mean, you know, what's my best advice on learning? Like we've been talking about it for the last hour. But yeah. uh, the, the, the idea that I would say I would put at the number one slot is probably directness just because a lot of these other little problems will go away when you're actually learning by doing so, for instance, oh, should I focus on retrieval? Well, you will retrieve the things you need to retrieve if you're actually doing real practice. Um, Makes spacing, sense. what should I spread out my practice? Well, you will spread out your practice when you're doing uh, directness. Now, this isn't to say that the other principles don't matter and that the only thing you need to do is learn directly. We even talked about mm. the basketball example, yeah. why that's not the case. But I think if you are not learning directly, kind of the other stuff doesn't matter as much. And so I think mm -hmm. whatever you're learning, I think the, the first question to ask directness. yourself What situation do you want to apply this in? How am I going to use this knowledge? And then at least do some of the practice that you're doing mm. in a form that resembles it. Could you please tell everybody where can they connect with you on the social webs, buy your book and so on and so forth? Sure. So so you can go check out my website at scotthyoung.com. Um, and there I have over a thousand articles. We were talking about me blogging for 13 plus years. So there's tons, and tons of writing time. and articles. Yeah. So you won't get tired of that. And if you have been sort of interested in this discussion, we've been talking about learning. I highly recommend checking out the book. I talk about a lot of specific examples and stories and uh, other sort of little details that we weren't able to cover in this chat. <laughs> so um, the first out of the five question is, uh, Scott, um, what are the three books that had the greatest influence on your life? Oh, wow. Greatest influence on my life. I think um, I think that the way I will answer that question is I think that the importance that a book has for you is also very dependent on where you are in your life when you read it. Sure. And so there are going to be people who will read a book and say this totally changed my life because it happened to give them the right idea at the right time in their life. Whereas someone else might, for instance, say, okay, you know, this book is like, I already knew that this book isn't very helpful. Mm -hmm. for me. So it's, I have read so many books over my life and I think a lot of them are really valuable. Then I'm going to answer a slightly different question that instead of answering which books had the most influence on me, which right now, to be honest with you, I would have a difficulty time, a difficult time telling just because I've read so many books, but mm -hmm. I would give three books that I would recommend for the readers that I think might have the biggest influence on them. And so I would say, um, well, this is my own book, obviously, but I would say that, um, <laughs> yeah, 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 it can't be too, can't be too, uh, too immodest. Shameless plug. <laughs> yeah, shameless plug. No, no, no. But three, three other books that I think everyone should read would be Atomic <laughs> Habits by James Clear, mm. Deep Work by Cal Newport, and the book Getting Things Done by David Allen. I think those three books are very important, powerful books if you want to improve your life. The second question is, um, what are the three movies that you have enjoyed the most? Ooh, favorite movies. Mm. Yep. Favorite movies. Yes. Um, I would say I really like the movie Gattaca with Ethan Hawke mm. and Uma Thurman. I really like the movie... Um, 
it's uh i i yeah oh man what movies are my favorite this is a hard question i would say that uh <laughs> yeah a lot I really of enjoy, i really enjoy science fiction movies so i would say one of my movies that has been a favorite of mine for a long time is uh, has been blade runner um, oh, so many people mentioned Blade Runner on the podcast. Like, I, I yeah. like Blade Runner. What can I say? And <laughs> um, and I would say if I were to pick a third movie, um, third one. If I were to also pick science a third fiction, movie, um, no, I you know this is a this is showing where my interests are, but I I really like the movie Mulholland Drive by David Lynch, oh, which is not a favorite of great him. movie. That's one of my <laughs> yeah. yeah, I also love it. So um, the third question is, uh, what is the most useful product or service that you have bought in recent memory? Most useful product or service. Uh, yep. Um, let me think about that. <laughs> oh, I'm trying to think right now. Many people mentioned Uber Eats. Some mentioned their AirPods. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it, yeah. If we're if we're being really honest, like my computer is like you know <laughs> an appendage for me. So I would say my computer would definitely be the most useful product that I've purchased. I mean, it's a little bit of a boring answer, but yeah. <laughs> Got it. So um, the fourth question is um, what are the most important realizations you've had in the last couple of years? And we had some guests who shared like something deeply personal about their business, mm -hmm. health, family, time, travel. So um, speak to anything you feel comfortable sharing with us today. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think if I'm thinking about which, uh, what experiences for me have been uh, deep realizations. Mm. Yeah, I think I think I will put this as my sort of my choice of pick uh, for for a realization that's been important to me. But I think that we often view our happiness or our fulfillment in life is coming from achieving a certain level of success or having a certain accomplishment. But I think that where we feel the happiest is when we see some sort of expansion in the possibilities we see for our own life. And this is a big reason that learning is centered so core to kind of what I feel like my life has been about is because in my mind, learning is really the sort of process of expanding those possibilities of seeing things that you didn't see before or being able to do things that you found impossible previously. Mm. And so for me, I think that your deepest moments of happiness are not going to come from, you know, when you get that promotion or when you win that prize or when everyone, you know, pats you on the back and respects you. It's going to come from when you are able to get past your own limitations, whether that's from ignorance or inability or just even your own limiting beliefs about yourself. And so mm. I think that learning for me has been so central to my philosophy of life just because I think that it is the art of doing that. Mm. So um, the last question for today is, Scott, um, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? 20-year-old self? Um, <laughs> you know, it's funny because we were just talking earlier about what would, you know, what have I done in my, you know, like, as I said, I was writing my 20s. blog in my 20s. So you can look back, you can look back when I was 20 and see what I was writing and thinking. I think... I think the thing that I would uh, say to my 20-year-old self would be to just keep persistence and, and keep patient with things because I think sometimes there can mm. be a lot of anxiety when you're younger about 
how your life is going to turn out. And uh, I think that working hard is very important, but I think there can often be a lot of anxiety about where you're going to go and where you're going to end up, especially, you know, you're starting a business, you're not sure whether it's going to be successful or, you know, you're dating someone new and you're not sure whether they're the one and, and this kind of thing. <laughs> and these sort of anxieties about the future can build up in life. But I think that regardless of how life turns out, we often tend to look back and we are relaxed about it in the future. And so it's somewhat of an irony that we often get stressed out about things because mm. sort of kind of almost regardless of what happens, we sort of um, have a sort of equanimity about it uh, once it's already done. And so I think just sort of appreciating that fact a little bit more deeply would have <laughs> would have would have uh, would have been helpful when I was 20. Got it. Scott. Thank you so, so much for being oh, on the show. Um, it was fun so talking to you today. Yeah, yeah, it was great. It was great. <laughs> Talk soon. All right, take care.